series called All Things New. And this is a series actually on the book of Revelation. Say, why in the world would you tackle something like that? Well, I've been trying to put forth the idea that this weird book, this is the strangest book in the Bible for some, uh, that this book is actually more relevant to our lives than ever. And we've been marching through this book in big, big chunks. Uh, I've never seen a church do it the way that we're doing it, but we tend to do di things differently anyway. So we're doing it three chapters at a time, the book of Revelation. And that is not that easy to do. But I'm trying to, to argue the idea that when the people read this book, uh, back in the first century in what is now uh, modern-day Turkey, they did not read it the way that we read it. You know, we read it today, and we, we have a stack of books next to us, and, you know, the ABCs of decrypting the book of Revelation, and what does this symbol mean, and who's the Antichrist, and what's the number of the beast, and what are the four horses of the apocalypse, and we think we have it all figured out, and there are just hundreds and hundreds of books that you can buy on the subject. Uh, but the people back then, they didn't read it the same way. Uh, they read it in uh, circumstances where they were being persecuted for their faith, where they were being thrown in prison for their faith, or being executed for their faith, and they needed hope. And so what the author does, and this is John, he, he kind of peels back the curtain of what they see. And this is what the word means. Revelation in the Greek language is the word apocalypse, uh, which doesn't always mean the end of the world. We think it means that, but what it meant is you peeled back the curtain to reveal what was behind. If we could pull this curtain up, you'd see something behind it, and that was the idea. So John is trying to say, let me show you what's behind all of the trouble that you see, and let me show you the conclusion of it all, and let me show you that God will triumph and that evil will be ultimately destroyed and vanquished. Let me show you what's going on behind the scenes. And that's really what he's doing in the book of Revelation, and that can help you because we're living in quite the time. Uh, today, we, we're in unprecedented change around the world. The cultural shifts just in North America are absolutely unprecedented. The technological change is driving it. There's changes in, in the views of everything now, and it's changing so, so fast, uh, quicker than any time in history, quicker than even the Industrial Revolution. Everything is changing, and it's changing quite quickly. Uh, politics are changing. The, the whole geopolitical situation is just like crazy. I mean, you can get addicted just to watching news feeds all day long. Never before have we seen this. It's a time also where the church around the world is being persecuted like never before. We only focus on North America, Canada, and the U.S., but around the world, the persecution is rampant. The last century, uh, it's it's more more people have lost their lives for their faith in Christ. More people have been persecuted, thrown in prison, etc., than the previous 19 centuries combined. So you, when you look at a book like Revelation, with all of that in mind, then it's sort of, okay, maybe this has some kind of relevance to my life. It's, it's a book in the Bible that says that if you read it, 
you'll actually be blessed by reading it. So that would imply that we could actually understand what in the world this author is talking about if we're to be blessed by reading it. Anyway, last week we talked about chapters 10 and 11 and 12, uh, this period of time that's called the tribulation. Uh, so where the, the, the world is being judged by God, finally, the, the, the wrath of God is being poured out on an unbelieving world, and there's this terrible, terrible time of judgment and tribulation, and we saw in chapter 10 that repentance is possible even in this terrible, terrible time of judgment to come. Uh, John is called to prophesy again, to speak to people about Christ, uh, just as the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel was. In chapter 11, we saw this idea of a kind of a transfer of power, how the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And so Jesus is presented as kind of this ultimate avenger, you know, the avenger movie series. Well, this is different than that. Jesus is the one who's meeting out this judgment on an unbelieving world. And there's this kind of transfer of power that takes place. And we saw in Revelation chapter 12, this really strange image of this, this woman and this dragon. And what does it all mean? And we saw that essentially there's this unseen war that's going on. Uh, there is a real uh, opponent that we have. There is a real uh, a devil. There's a real adversary that is in our lives. And he tries to accuse and he tries to bring fear and intimidation into our lives. He tries to paralyze our lives. And we ended last week by asking the question, well, are you winning that unseen war that takes place right up here, right upstairs in the battlefront of the mind? And today, uh, we're going to sort of put the finger on pause for a second because when you move into Revelation 13 and Revelation 14 and Revelation 15, you're going to see some pretty scary stuff. Uh, so you see the, the, the presentation, if you will, of this figure, the Antichrist comes. And you see what he begins to do in the world. You see the control that he has over the world. And you see this start to happen. And you see him begin to attack uh, the Christians who are left. And it's quite, uh, it's quite a picture that's painted there in Revelation 13, 14, and 15. We'll, we'll pick away at it a bit next week. Uh, but there's a statement that kind of weaves its way through those three chapters. And as all these things are going on, uh, and this presumably in the future, there's this statement that takes place. And it says this, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. In other words, what's going on now and what's happening now, you're going to have to endure it and you're going to have to endure it patiently. And when I say now, I mean in the time that's shown here in Revelation. But the patient endurance is necessary, we're told, on the part of the saints. And I just want to spend a few moments on that word and what it means, because uh, there is definitely, wherever you're coming from in your view of Revelation, because there's all kinds of views out there. I mean, there's the view that everything that's taking place in the book of Revelation as we read it has already 
uh, preceded us in history. So it's a, it's a view that all of this is done, uh, and we're looking into the past when we look into Revelation. Then there's the view, that the one that I hold, where when we look into the book of Revelation, we're looking at least in part uh, into the future. And there's all kinds of views in between, and I could bore you with all kinds of terminology and put you to sleep with it, but the, that's not the point today. The point is there's a very clear line of demarcation in the book of Revelation between a believer and a non-believer. And it is crystal clear. Uh, and the term that's used in the book of Revelation often is this term saint in reference to believers. So it's pretty clear when you read that book, whatever angle you want to come from, whatever interpretation, school of this and that, pre-tribulational, post-tribulational, pre-millennial, millennial, post-millennial, ABC millennial, whatever, it's clear you need to be able to know whether or not you are a believer or not. And this is crystal clear in the book. So I ask a basic question today. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know? Because you should know and you should have an assurance if you are a Christian, if you are a saint, which is the term the Bible uses for believers, you should know and you should be confident in this. Now, some of you, you come from a Catholic background, Catholic, Roman Catholic tradition. And in the Roman Catholic tradition, that word saint is not used for believers. It's only used for very special believers who are somehow elevated to sainthood. And we call them saint this and saint that. Well, this is not the way that the New Testament does it. The New Testament uses this term saint in an overarching sense to describe this person is a believer. And there, this, this term saint is used. But how do you know that you are one? How do you know that you are a Christian? I remember talking with some people who, when I was working um, uh, in commercial printing before I got into the ministry, and they thought that it was so arrogant uh, that I told them with conviction that I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven when I die. And they thought, how can you know that? How can you be so sure of that? That is so self-centered and so arrogant. And yet when you read the pages of the New Testament, it's clear you should know and you should have a conviction and a confidence that you are indeed a Christian. But how do you know that you are? You know, are, are you born that way? You know, baby, baby Dylan, who was born this week, was he born a Christian? Well, no, you're not born that way. I mean, the baby's a baby. Like, uh, you, just because your parents are Christian or your grandparents are Christian or, you know, your parents may even be pastors and preachers and missionaries and all that, that doesn't make you a Christian if you're born into that home. Um, if, you, if you go to church, even on Sunday, <laughs> does that make you a Christian? Well, not necessarily. I mean, you can be a part of a community of faith. You can come, you can participate, you can sing, you can dance, you can play an instrument, you can run the soundboard, you can do all of those things, but you still may not be a believer. It just means that you're doing those things. Uh, there's, an old, there's an old preacher's joke, you know, uh, going into McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Right? I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. Well, you know, I was baptized. Well, th that means you got wet. 
Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a believer. Not, a, not if you look into the pages of the Bible. So how do you know you are a Christian? Well, uh, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, uh, also wrote three other letters in the New Testament. Um, it's kind of funny when you look in the table of contents of a New Testament, you see all these Johns, you know, one John, two John, three John, John and Revelation, which John is the right John, all right? So it, we're going to look at a letter that he wrote, it's First John. So if you have an old-fashioned Bible with a table of contents, you can flip to one John, or if you have an electronic Bible, you can look at First John there, uh, but he tells you in crystal clear terms how you can know and be certain that you are amongst this group of saints, that you are a Christian. And we'll look at it two ways today. The first way is what makes you not a Christian? And he's very, very clear about this. What makes you not a Christian? And um, he uses the term this way throughout the, the book. It's five chapters long. You can read it on your own. We're just going to pick little pieces of it today. But he uses this term, if we claim, if we claim to be in him, if we claim to know him, in other words, you claim with your mouth. So if we talk the talk, he's saying, yet we do not walk the walk is what he's going to argue. So if we claim certain things and we do not show certain things, if there's a lack of congruency between what we profess and how we behave, then there's a problem. So this is, this is the way that he's going to argue it. And he does so in several ways in the book of 1 John. So first, of, first and foremost, if we claim to have fellowship with him, Yet we walk, he says, in the darkness. This is in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6. So we claim to have fellowship with him. The him is Jesus. And yet we walk in the darkness. So in other words, another way of saying you're not walking the talk. Um, I presently, I don't know if I've said this before, but presently I'm bivocational. So that means I got two jobs. <laughs> it's common for church planters to do this. Um, I do this largely because it gets me out in the community. So I do two days a week now, actually two and a half days a week, over at the big food bank on Provence. Many of you have been there, and I help run their little thrift store and uh, volunteer the food distribution on Thursdays. So I do that about 16, 20 hours a week, and then I run the church. So that's bivocational, you call that. And I'm doing it for now. We'll see how long it lasts. But it's really interesting when you're out in a non-Christian world, which every single one of you are, I mean, you don't work in the clergy. You don't, you don't work in some church building. You know, you're out in a non-Christian world. It's very interesting when you're out in the non-Christian world in your school or in your job, uh, some of you just basically in your neighborhood, you start interacting with non-Christian people and you actually inform them, you actually claim to be a Christian. Have any of you ever experienced what that's like? Put up your hand. 
Wow, okay, three of you. All right, so you're in the right church because you're going to be challenged to, to do that uh, if, you're, if you're a believer. You're going to be challenged to say so. But I'm sure there's more of you who, who can raise your hand to this, but when you say that you're a Christian, there's a change in the way that people look at you, right? There's a change in the way that they interact with you. Sometimes if they, if they use, you know, some harsh language when they talk to you, maybe when they're around you, they might change their language or they might say, oh, excuse me, or they might, you know, they might start asking you all kinds of questions. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? But there's a change. There's a difference because they know you claim to be in him. And what do they do? And they do this to me too, because not only am I a professing Christian, I'm also a pastor. So they know, okay, well, he's, he's supposed to be, you know, an example or something because he's a minister. So, you know, they ask me all kinds of questions or they watch the way I work or they watch what I say, they watch what I do. And it's amazing how non-Christian people have a very heightened hypocrisy meter. Have you ever noticed this? So they're watching to see whether or not what you say and how you live line up. And they're quick to spot the lack of unity there. They're quick to spot the incongruency there. And I'll have you know they're right. Because this is exactly what John says. He says, you claim to have fellowship with him, but the way that you walk, the things that you do, the life that you live is in darkness. So it's, it's, it's got no moral framework. It's, it's got no sense of the mark of Christ on it at all. The way that you live, the way you walk, and that's a deliberate thing, Right? Nobody walks involuntarily uh, unless there's something very, very wrong with their brain and their body. When you walk, you make a very deliberate choice to put one foot in, the other, in front of the other in a particular direction. Um, so he's not talking about a person who, you know, they profess to be a Christian and yet they have these imperfections in their lives and the sin in their life that they're working on. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the person who professes Christ and yet intentionally walks in the darkness in a morally uh, uh, evil way. So he says, if you do this, then you're not a Christian. So chapter 1 and verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, he says that what we're doing is we're deceiving ourselves. We lie and we do not live by the truth. Again, it's very blunt, it's very straight, it's very direct, uh, but it makes perfect sense. What else makes you not a Christian? If we claim, he says, to be without sin. If we claim to be without sin. There is a school of thought that says as soon as a person becomes a Christian, they're, they're now perfect. And, oh, no, I don't sin at all, and I'm perfect, and it's called the doctrine of sinless perfection. Uh, and John would look at this, and he would say, this is nonsense. Uh, every person who professes the name of Jesus, who, who is a Christian, still sins. Now, hopefully, they sin less than they used to, uh, but they are not going to be perfect this side of the grave, is the way that he would say it. 
Um, and so if we claim that we have no sin, this is a huge problem. Uh, and part of the whole thing of Christianity is a person has to admit that they're a sinner. You're not eligible for the grace of God if you cannot admit simply that you need it. Uh, and the grace of God, God gives you the salvation that you don't deserve. That's very simple. So you're not eligible based on one thing. If you say, I don't need it, I'm perfect, there's no sin. Um, and today in the culture at large, you know, if you, you, you even use that word sin, it's like, wow, that's an old word, like there's no such thing. Well, no, you, if you're going to be a Christian, then there has to be an admission, there has to be an acknowledgement, okay, I, I am a sinner. There is transgression in my life. I cross the line of God's moral code. You say, well, what's his moral code? Well, read the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, you know. Even if you know just two or three of them, you probably broke them already. I mean, I think I've broken all ten in some shape or form, at least. I'm sure I've broken every one. Uh, Billy Graham used to say that. I've broken every one. Billy, he used to say, I'm a sinner. Uh, and he was right. Because you cannot profess to be a Christian and say you have no sin. Now, you may not identify with the word sinner. You may identify with the word saint. Uh, but you are a practicing saint. You're going, to, you're going to have a lot of work to do to make it to the reality of, okay, now I sin no more. And that's not going to take place until you meet Jesus face to face. So you cannot claim that you're without sin. He says when you do that, when you claim to be without sin, again, we are lying to ourselves, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And he says the opposite. He says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So you can't be a Christian if you say you have no sin. Uh, number three, if we claim to know him, but not do what he commands uh, in chapter two and verse uh, four, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, he deceives himself. He's a liar and the truth is not in him. Wow. So he's really saying, like, if a person claims to be a Christian, they should do what Jesus said to do. Well, what did he say to do? Well, read the Gospels and you'll see. But you can't claim the name of Christ if you don't do what Christ says. This is fairly logical. Uh, and there's a lot of things that Jesus said. It should be fairly easy to detect by the way a person lives, whether they wear the name of Christ or whether they don't. The person who claims to know him but does not do what he says is not one who knows him. You say, wow, that is so, so strong. Well, it's very clear in the way that he says it. And again, I'm not talking about people who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I struggle in this area and I struggle in this area. That's not what he's addressing. He's saying, no, this person claims to be a Christian, but blatantly disobeys what God says. Well, then the person can't be a Christian in that case. There's something wrong. There's a real lack of congruency there. 
next observation from John. If we claim to be in the light, but hate our brother or sister. If we claim to be in the light, it's not talking about brother and sister like your biological brother and sister. It's talking about, well, within the family of faith, within the household of God, if you will, if a person claims to be in the light and yet hates their fellow believer, well, there's a lack of congruency there. Like hatred for John is akin to murder. It's, it's hatred in a, in a very, very pure sense. So he argues, how can a person claim to be in the light and yet the relationship that they have with someone else who's supposed to be in the light is so bad that it's, that it's based on hatred? That can't work. How can a person, he would argue, love God who they cannot see and yet hate their fellow believer who they can see, there's a lack of congruency there. Now, I mean, you're going to have times where you have disagreements, you have arguments, you have conflicts, uh, but that's not the same as what John is talking about. He's talking about a very pure sense of hatred, hatred in the sense of, you know, in your heart, it's akin to murder. He says, you can't be a Christian if you claim to be that way. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light hates his brother is still in the darkness, still blinded, still can't see because of that hatred. So those are kind of the detectors of, okay, there is a problem here. There may be a profession of Christianity, but wow, the life that the person is living is not lining up. Say, well, that's pretty depressing. Well, the news gets better. How do you know you are a Christian then? How can you know if you're not born into it, you know, it's not in your DNA, if going to church doesn't necessarily make you a Christian, if participating doesn't necessarily make you, if even being baptized in water doesn't necessarily make you a Christian, then how can we know we are one? And these, here's three ways, and this is not just John, this is really, you'll, you'll find this uh, uh, peppered through the New Testament. Uh, first, first way, and this is the term that John will use, this is how we know we are in him, etc. So first term for you to learn, fruit, fruit. Is there any fruit in your life? Um, and this is a, 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 an image that's used by Jesus quite often. It's used by Paul quite often. And it's this idea of, well, back in that time, you know, you had a time of agriculture. Everybody's living off of agriculture. So how is your fruit I mean, do any of you, when you shop for fruit, do you, do you close your eyes and just grab it from the bin? No. What do you do when you shop for fruit? Go ahead, shout it out. You do what? You choose. Uh, based on what do you choose? Color? Yeah, if it's got a really nice, presumably bright color, you might pick that fruit. What else would you do? Smell? Yeah. So if it smells... Good versus perhaps rotten, right? Rotten fruit has a peculiar smell to it. So you're going to look at it. You're going to look at the color. You're going to smell it. What else are you going to do? Peel it. Feel it. Yeah, well, if you peel it, you don't want anyone looking. But you'll, but you'll feel it, right? If it's, if it's what? 
How will you know if it's fresh based on touch? If it's firm, yeah. So you don't want a mushy apple, right? If you pick the apple up and it's mush in your hand, you're going to put it right back, right? If it's got a big old bruise on it, you're going to put it right back. If it's got an ugly color, you're going to put it back. Uh, I'm amazed in the, the grocery stores how they, how they put stuff out on the shelves and they actually expect people to buy it. Does that amaze you as well? So I'm amazed that they expect you to pay this amount of money for fruit that is not ripe or a fruit that they, they try to force it to make it look ripe, right? And they expect you to buy this fruit. So you smell it, you, you, you touch it, you, you observe it with your eyes. Uh, sometimes you might even taste it, right? Especially if it's like a cluster of grapes or something. You might, you might look the other way and pick it and I don't do that, all right? Uh, but, but I mean, you might do that and if you have the opportunity, you might taste it and say, well, you know, it's kind of failing the taste test. But you, you're, it's very easy to observe whether the fruit is good or whether the fruit is bad. And this is how, one of the ways you know uh, that you're a Christian. So First John chapter 2, uh, verse 6, um, he says this, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So as opposed to walking in darkness, the person walks as Jesus did. So presumably they would study how did Jesus walk? How did Jesus live? Well, that's the way I'm going to live. For example, I'm going to forgive people who, who sin against me because this is the way that Jesus lived. Or I'm going to um, uh, uh, believe in truth versus, you know, there's no such thing as truth. No, because Jesus clearly believed in truth. So my life is going to be marked by that. And you begin to model your life after Jesus. Whoever has that kind of lifestyle, whoever has that kind of walk, well, that is clearly fruit. There's something being seen. Uh, verse 10, whoever loves his brother, as opposed to hatred, lives in the light. So when there's an attitude that isn't an attitude of you know, visceral kind of hatred toward the person. Well, that means that something's going on there. There's a change that's taken place. There's fruit that's being seen there. Uh, chapter 3 and, um, and uh, verse uh, 16. This is how we know what love is, John would say. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Very practical. He's saying, you have this person in your, in your church, presumably, and you know that the person is in need. This would be material need. And you have no sense of trying to help that person at all. Uh, how can the love, be, be, the love of God be in that person? So he says, well, dear children, let us not love with words or with tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is fruit. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So he's arguing, is there an action? Is there fruit? Is there a sense of care for this other person who's in need? 
if there's no sense of care, if there's no sense of trying to help the person, well, then there's a problem there. But if there's this sense of care and this sense of compassion and this kind of an automatic thing, well, this is fruit that is starting to show. So there should be a, an obvious change that even you can observe, you know, after that kind of line that you cross of faith, there should be a change that you observe. And you should say, wow, I've I, I see that I behave differently. I see that my attitudes change. I see that my behavior is different. I have different desires than I did before. I want to do different things. I want to stop doing something and start doing something. And there, that's what that called is. That's that's fruit that's developing in your life. And fruit is an is not instantaneous. It takes time. Uh, some things change over a long, long period of time. Some change over a short period of time, but fruit, in a general sense, takes time. But there should be some. There should definitely be some. And this is what John would argue. Uh, another observation that he makes, this is how we know we are in him through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So Christianity is not a religion in the modern definition of the word religion. So religion in our mentality is you do all these things, you, you, you be a good person, you, you go to church or wherever religious thing, you, you, know, you help people across the street and you do all these good things, some of them that John talks about, and if you do those things, then you'll be saved or you make it to heaven or you experience nirvana or whatever the thing is. But you have to do a number of things in order to attain it. Um, and you have to do those things. You're responsible for those things. You must change your life. You must do this. You must not do that. Uh, the other day, it was 30, 34, 35 outside, and I was driving in, in Brossard, and I saw at the corner, uh, right at a busy intersection on, on uh, Tashiro Boulevard, I saw these two uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you, know, if you know me, you know I love talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, right? And I saw these two Jehovah's Witnesses. They were outside, and they had their, their, their display, and they're all dressed up in their ties. I mean, this poor guy, 35 degrees, and he got his suit and tie on, you know? And at least they had the sense to hold the umbrellas to try and block the sun. But they're out there, my friends, for a very specific reason. Uh, that is religion. And they need to do that because they are commanded to do that uh, by their God who tells them you must do this if you want to achieve and their whole system of salvation. You have to do those things. Those things are your responsibility. You must do them and that's it, point final. Now, in Christianity, you have a very different thing going on. Yes, you're, you're, you're told there should be a change in your behavior, but you're also told that effectively you're not going to be very good at changing your own behavior. You need the assistance, you need the empowerment, you need the enablement of God himself to change you. <laughs> so you're not going to be very effective at simply changing yourself. Say, well, now I'm a Christian, now I've got all the right moves, I say all the right things, I do all the right things, and now I'm a Christian. No, you need 
the Holy Spirit within you to transform you on a day-to-day basis. There is no way you will be able to sustain your Christianity by yourself. Then all you have is religion. Uh, In Christianity, you have this idea that the very presence of God is in your life. At the moment of faith, the very presence of this God comes into your life. So 1 John chapter 3 and verse uh, 24. Uh, Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. You say, well, that looks like religion. Wait. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. There is one who comes to dwell within your life. Chapter 4 and verse uh, 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is this idea that you're changing, but you're not 100% sure how or why it's happening. Say, well, why do I... Why do I not want to be involved in such and such anymore? I don't understand what's changing in me. Or why is it that I've observed that there's a whole stream of coincidences that have now taken place that have brought me to a certain point and led me to a certain point? I have not observed this before. What's going on? Why do I have a sense of, of that there's someone directing my life now and that there's, there's a path that I seem to be on? Why is that happening? That, my friends, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Very, very rarely will you hear an audible voice. Um, I have never heard the audible voice of God except one time where I sensed that God was laughing at me, okay? And that may just be because of my personality, but I have never heard the voice of God. But I have sensed the prompting, uh, the direction, the movement, uh, the still small voice, if you will, of the Spirit of God many, many, many times. And I can testify to that because I've seen things line up and I've seen a whole kind of stream of what I would call coordinated coincidences that just were not possible, inexplicable things uh, that can only be be understood because of the presence of the Spirit of of God in my life. And um, you will sense this. Uh, The longer that you develop your relationship with God, Uh, you will sense, ah, there is one who is with me. I don't hear his voice, but I definitely sense that he is with me and that he's directing the path that I take. This is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a, um, this kind of thing is a a deposit, Paul would say, of what is to come. It's like a, it's like a trailer. You know, you go to these movies and you see these trailers before the movie plays and they'll give you a 30 second clip of something that's coming in a year. You know, the Avengers movie, I think they played clips, Joshua, probably like a year in advance. They're playing these trailers, you know, it's got millions and millions of people watching these trailers. Well, in a sense, our life with Christ now is like a trailer. And we have this, the presence of the Holy Spirit, Paul would say, a deposit of what is to come, the person of God living in you. It's a preview 
It's a trailer of what is going to come on the other side uh, when we meet him face to face. And finally, how do you know you are a Christian? This is how we know, uh, uh, John would say, you've made a decision. We call that a no-brainer sometimes. Have you made a clear decision? In some way, in some shape or form, have you made a decision to believe? So here, here's what John says. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Notice it doesn't say, he who feels like he has the Son has life. No, it's not about what you feel. It's about, have you made a decision? You know, we sang the song, I am yours, I am yours. Well, have you made a decision to give yourself to the Son? He who has the Son has life. Uh, how many of you are married or have been married? Put up your hand. You, Adrian and Chung, you should put your hands up. I did your wedding a month ago, okay? <laughs> if you're not sure now, we got big problems, okay? I spent a lot of time with you before. I hope everything is going good. They're newlyweds, by the way. So um, uh, when you get the ring on your finger, right, you have the person. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I, I always tell people, especially husbands, always keep your ring on your finger, I don't care if it's painful. I don't care if you work in heavy machinery. You always keep that ring on your finger. That's your receipt. Think of it that way. And you can't take it back. So you can't exchange it. There's no refunds. You always keep it on your finger and you remember, you remember that's your receipt. So one day it'll be over and I'll, I'll turn the radio off one day. So you always keep your receipt. But that's a kind of a picture, a symbol that you have that person and they have you. That's, that's why we wear it. It's a really, really cool symbol. But you don't always feel in love with the person, do you? I mean, you've, you've, you've all been married a month. I bet you even a month into the marriage, you're probably scratching your head and saying, good night, like this... This is going to take a lot of work. You know? I mean, you don't always feel the, the love and the vibe and all of this. That's not the question. The question is, do you have the person? That's a decision that you make. That's a decision that you're not going to revoke. At least that's what you said at the altar. You know, to have and to hold is what you said or something like that uh, until you both die. Like until death do us part. Right? So it's not about what you feel all the time. It's about the decision that you made. He who has the Son has life. Look, there are times when you're not going to feel it at all. But did you make the decision? And people say, well, I don't know. I don't know if I did or I don't know if I didn't. Well, if you don't know, then maybe you need to, you know, get a little certain of, of that decision. But let me help you with it. For some people, this is a, like, a, like a very clear moment. They clearly remember, they clearly have a defined moment where they said, Lord, I believe. And maybe they prayed a prayer in a church somewhere, or maybe they were watching, you know, an evangelist on television and they prayed a prayer. And it's a very, very clear moment. For me, it was like that. It's a very, very clear moment. Uh, but for others, it's not. For others, it's a series of moments 
For others, it's like a process that took a little while. They can't remember a time, a place where they, you know, prayed some, some prayer. It wasn't like that. It was more a process. But the point is, has a decision been made? And if you, if you haven't made that decision, well, the good news is you can clearly make the decision. John is clear about it. Uh, he tells us in the, in the Gospel of John, to those who believed him, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Believe, receive, become. Very, very simple. And it's not intended to be complicated. So I'm going to invite Simon if he would come and he would play uh, the guitar just in the background. And we're going to, to kind of celebrate this idea today. It's our first Sunday together. Again, there are a number of families who are away. I know of at least half a dozen who are away on holiday. But those of you who are here, we're going to do something very, very significant. This is the first time that we've met on a Sunday in almost two years. Uh, and we're going to do something that uh, is, is in the Bible, something that the church around the world has been doing for two millennia. And it's a reminder of the basic, basic gospel story. The, and when you believe these things, this is the path, this is the road to salvation. You, you clearly, through communion, you're doing what? You're remembering Jesus died on the cross. Uh, you're remembering that that death, that atonement was for you. You're remembering that. Uh, you're remembering that you are, in fact, a sinner. That you are, in fact, in need of redemption. You're remembering that as well. You're remembering that he will come again. This is something we do while we wait for Jesus to return. So we're reminding ourselves of the gospel story when we take these emblems. And they're just pictures and symbols. Thank you, Shirley, for handing them out. If any of you need uh, the emblems today, just put your hand up and she'll serve you. It's really, really simple. It's just a picture, just a symbol. It's very, very small. What we do, we're not having a great big meal together, but it's so significant because we have to constantly remind ourselves, like the song says, you know, I will remind myself of these things. These are the simple things that I believe. This is the simple gospel story. Come what may, I know that I have the Son in my life, and I know that I belong to 